Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Joe Zimmel and Valerie Friedman. I probably have said something not unlike this before, but that wouldn't stop me from saying it again, right? Uh, I do believe that when this period of time in human history is studied in the not-too-far-distant future, the anthropologists or sentient robots or whatever who are studying us will be very interested in the moment at which we started carrying devices with us that issued push notifications. Because push notifications are these things, you know, where your phone makes kind of a funny noise and you look at the phone and your uh, understanding of reality shifts a tiny bit or a lot, depending on what the notification is about. Um, And we are in a period right now where your, your phone does that every, you know, I don't know, 180 seconds or something, and, like, everything's different. Um, So uh, for that reason, we are scrapping whatever plan we had today, and because, of course, consciousness is shrinking as a result of this process, I have no idea what that plan was. But instead, because we are in the middle uh, of a a very insane period uh, involving the Kavanaugh nomination and in a kind of tangential way, the sort of Schrodinger status of Rod Rosenstein yesterday, where we didn't really know whether he was still deputy attorney general or not, uh, or whether he was a cat. He could have been a cat, too. Um, Because of all that, we decided we better put a different kind of show on the air today, let people talk a little bit about this themselves. So I'll try to leave time at the end for phone calls, but also see if we can enlarge your understanding of what's happening. So let me tell you who's on the show today here in the first segment, uh, two guests that we uh, love and cherish, uh, Margaret Sullivan, media a columnist for the Washington Post, and Emily Bazelon, staff writer for the New York Times Magazine, co-host of the Slate Political Gab Fest, and the author of Sticks and Stones, Defeating the Culture of Bullying and Rediscovering the Power of Character and Empathy. Though I feel like there might be, is that your most recent book? Has there not been another book since then? Oh, Colin, you're so helpful. I have a book coming out in April. It's a book about criminal justice reform. It's called Charged. Right. So you could pre-order that at an independent bookstore. I think that would be the moral thing to do. Go to <laughs> our go to RJ Julia and say I want Emily. I want the first one, one of the first copies of Emily's book. Uh, and joining us a little bit later will be David French, uh, who recently and memorably kind of debated uh, Emily about some of these issues. I f- felt like it didn't really make sense to have them have sort of Clay versus Liston all over again. So uh, I'll, I'm going to talk to him to, uh, separately. But David French, being a conservative uh, writer, uh, senior fellow for the National Review Institute and senior writer at National Review, has a very different way of thinking about this whole situation. Uh, Margaret, I'm going to have you get us started because I think you wrote one of the most uh, relevant pieces about this, was, which was basically, you know, how to stay sane at a moment where, as I said before, your phone is blurbing out push notifications all the time, which reshape your understanding of current events. And I guess one thing you said is you can't just read the push notifications, right? You have to go a little deeper. Right. Yeah. I mean, I think it's really important to um, try to not react viscerally to each thing that that happens. Um, And it's hard not to. But um, at least before you, you can react, you know, your heart rate can go up and you can do whatever you want to do, of course. But before you share it with commentary on social media or you know, to whoever it is you share things with. I think it is good to actually, if it's a story, actually read the story. If it's, you know, uh, something else, kind of 
try to get a bigger grasp on it before you sort of add to the vitriol. We have plenty of that out there already. And I, I guess what I'm advising is to slow down a bit. And slow down a bit also um, is a piece of advice I would give when there is immediate news, like there was yesterday morning, about Rosenstein being uh, fired or resigning, because that turned out not to be the case. And so there was a lot of immediate reaction to it that, you know, then like two hours later, we were sort of, well, oh, never mind, that didn't happen. And it may yet, but it it certainly didn't in that moment. So you have to kind of, uh, you know, keep your powder dry. Right. Yeah, I feel like I lived through unnecessarily Rod Rosenstein's political funeral. Uh, And now, like, you know, it was just a waste of time uh, buying flowers and grieving. Um, So, um, Emily, one thing that Margaret and I read uh, a while back, I just happened to know that she read it, too. um, It was a piece by Amanda Ripley who talked about how journalism needs to be better at what she called complicating the narrative, that it's pretty easy to report on entrenched conflict as entrenched conflict, but harder uh, to report about complicated situations in in which each side may be able to make significant arguments. I actually thought one of the better examples of complicating the narrative uh, was listening to you and David French uh, hit the ball back and forth uh, on Slate Political Gab Fest. But I don't feel in in general like this Kavanaugh situation has been covered that way. It seems to have been covered kind of as an entrenched conflict and not much else. Right. Well, maybe part of the problem is this also involves a solution Margaret's pointing to, which is to reserve some judgment. And I think when you have stories that have complicated facts and have accusations that aren't necessarily corroborated right away or are hard to judge, just waiting um, to see what kind of verification comes across what kinds of holes are people poking in a story like Blasey Ford's? How do you feel about the weaknesses they're exposing? Are they convincing to you? Um, you know, in some ways, this is the perfect situation for all of this because we don't even have an agreed upon standard for deciding, um, you know, how to think about Judge Kavanaugh's character. Do we think the burden of proof is on him that you know, he's the one who's trying to be on the Supreme Court. Does he need to convincingly rebut these accusations? Um, The senators are going to be making up these decisions for themselves, and I think some of it will come down to just their um, analysis of how credible and substantiated they think the allegations are and that that they need to be, right? Because we're not in the realm of beyond a reasonable doubt, we're not going to have the kind of trial that would make it easier to come to resolution here. We really are all together in the court of a public opinion. Right. And Emily, just let me stay with you on that for a second. So one of the fundamental questions that we could ask ourselves or ask the, you know, the chair umpire, if there were one, is um, what is needed? What is needed to make a case like the Blasey Ford case or the Ramirez case? Is it uh, a convincing, detailed allegation or is it a detailed allegation with corroboration from somebody else? You know, if you talk to conservatives, they are going to say if there's no corroboration, no real firsthand corroboration or, you know, contemporary memorializing of this, uh, it loses some of its heft. Uh, Maybe you could speak to that. Well, I think those are 
valid points to make, and then you can weigh them against other kinds of circumstances. So in the 1980s, when Blasey Ford says this incident took place, was it normal for girls um, to come forward and talk about these things and make reports about them? Um, I was a girl in the 1980s. I will tell you that the answer to that is no. Um, that doesn't necessarily mean that Blasey Ford is, Ford is telling the truth, but you might want to think about that as you're weighing this. Um, another question you might want to ask is about her in incentives. You know, what is it like to come forward in a situation like this? Um, what kind of price is she paying for that? Do you feel that the um, relative lateness of her coming forward with her name affects her credibility or bothers you in some other way about the process? Or do you feel like you can understand, given the fact that she's had to leave her home, um, why it would have taken a long time? Um, I think those are just factors that everybody has to weigh for themselves. And it really depends on your life experience and um, and and how you assess um, guilt or innocence, but also just credibility in um, when, when you have a complicated set of facts like these. So, Margaret Sullivan, one of the things that we do in this situation also is we turn to journalists. Uh, we turn to journalists to sort things out, tell us uh, things that they think are important. It doesn't happen very often, but I think you and I might have had a pretty different reaction to the New Yorker piece that broke uh, Sunday night. It was uh, the uh, Jane Mayer and Ronan Farrow piece uh, about the, the second accuser, Ramirez. I read it Sunday night when it broke, and it made me really nervous. Uh, I was just looking at the way that it was sourced, the way that the reconstruction of Ramirez Mira's is memories of this uh, happened over, I think, a six day period. Uh, the fact that their corroboration was coming from some, somebody not at this party where this incident would have happened, but somebody who had heard about it, uh, but had, was 100 percent sure that he had heard about it. I don't know. I got queasy or nervous anyway, reading this, thinking, I just wonder if The Washington Post would have printed a story like this. You were, I think, maybe in a different place there, judging from what you said about it. Well, I, I did have some of those feelings about it. Um, I was, you know, maybe unduly, but nevertheless still um, moved by the fact that this was Jane Mayer and Ronan Farrow. Um, I have the great respect for both of them, and I think that Jane happens to be one of the, um, not only one of the great reporters in the country, but one of the true experts on the whole question of sexual misconduct because she literally wrote the book with Jill Abramson about Clarence Thomas and the Anita Hill situation. Um, so, and I did think that the New Yorker piece, perhaps to a fault, went out of its way to highlight its own, um, the, the weaknesses it, that it had in its story. Um, and, and that has been seized upon by, by, a lot of people to say to say that well the story shouldn't have been published it wasn't strong enough i i think it was i think it was valid to publish it and i think it was admirable to publish it with the amount of transparency in it although there's a there's a sort of an undersired <laughs> um, disadvantage to doing it that way it, it actually it allows people to undercut undercut the story and and you know i think we have to know when we talk about that story that it is it's interesting it's important i think and it's uh, something to take carefully right but people are so unable to take it you know <laughs> for all that it is you have to judge it one way or the other and 
and consider it it's either black or it's white and there's nothing in between. Right. And, and Emily, with, with that in mind, I mean, it does seem when, when you get a story like this, because at this moment people have kind of chosen sides and they're, they're hypervigilant uh, about new pieces of information, it just seems kind of likely that the people who were going in the direction of Kavanaugh's culpability will just file, file this away with everything else as further proof of what kind of person he is and, and or was. And the people who feel that this is some kind of smear campaign, which I know is a loaded phrase, are going to file it away as further proof that the media is grasping at straws with kind of inadequately sourced accounts of parties that may or may not have happened. I just I don't know where we get to to light and truth, as they say down at Yale. (laughs) As they do try to say. Um, Well, I mean, look, one thing to think about with this story is the responses it has shaken loose. So, Um, Judge Kavanaugh gave these very adamant denials about his conduct in high school. He, you know, uh, really minimized, if not denied, a lot of the um, um, claims about hard drinking that are um, coming out of people talking about his past in high school, in college, and in law school. And, you know, now other people who knew him at those times in his life are coming forward. And I think that that um, raises more questions about his veracity and um, and how we kind of take his measure on that score. Now, I suppose if you're defending him and you think this is a smear campaign, then you would argue he doesn't have any choice. But I feel like that's not right. And I keep wondering about a kind of path not taken here, which was the path of you know what, it was a different time in high school and college then. A lot of people drank to excess. I can't remember everything I did. If I hurt someone, um, I'm really sorry. There's sort of a a different kind of um, response as opposed to a sort of blanket denial here that also denies a lot of related behavior that that we have record of. Um, I'm sort of sorry that we're not having that more nuanced conversation. For political reasons, I think Kavanaugh must have concluded it was impossible. Right. Or or he didn't know how many cards were going to be turned over, Emily. I'm going to stay with you about this for a second, because I've been thinking a lot about that, too, that probably if Kavanaugh or maybe if Kavanaugh knew everything that was going to come out and it's come out drip by drip by drip, this kind of death by a thousand cuts, um, you know, he might have crafted with his with his help and his handlers, some kind of thing like that. Like, look, I, I, I look back and there's a lot of stuff I did that I regret and maybe some stuff that I don't remember that well because I drank too much as a teenager. I don't think it bears on my candidacy now. I'd like the nation to think about that as they think about my candidacy. But the problem is, if you don't know it's coming, you don't know how much you need to do it, right? Well, but Colin isn't, you only don't know what's coming if you don't know what you did, right? I mean, if you have, right? Like, if you can take the measure of your own life and imagine what people could start digging up once they're looking at this part of your record, then it seems like you do have fair warning about what might happen. Now, I I don't want to prejudge the truth of the matter here, but certainly as pertains 
to the drinking, some of what we're talking about is on his yearbook page. So it doesn't seem to me like something that um, should have surprised him. Right. Um, I, I want to come back to that in, in just a second because there are odd things about this. But, but Margaret, for journalism, there's kind of this odd race between two trains, right? There's the train of the confirmation process, which issues a slightly different timetable every day, but it's a train and it's running and it's heading towards confirmation. And, and there are issues that should be on the table if they're relevant. They need to get on the table before a vote is taken, you know, and then there's whatever pace the journalism train would take you know, were there but world and time. And and I, I wonder if you'd like to say have anything to say about that. It seems as though some decisions are being made are being made because we're fighting kind of an unusual clock here. Right. And my point about this has been that um, although there are claims that this is an eleventh hour, um, you know, last minute allegations and so on, you know, this is a sort of a false construct. There actually is no eleventh hour because they're actually doesn't need to be a clock here. Um, and, but, you know, there, you're right that there there is one. But, you know, when we when we consider the idea of an FBI investigation, um, that is something that could happen. This this vote doesn't have to come anytime soon. Um, so there's this there's a sort of a false um, construct of of the, the time constraints. Nevertheless, as you say, you know, that that's reality. And then the, the journalism part of it does have to have that in mind. And that may well have been part of the calculation at The New Yorker, you know. Um, and, and I've made the, the reference to uh, Arnold Schwarzenegger's, um, the, the claims against him years ago when the L.A. Times had this investigation of his groping of women, which he later essentially admitted, um, you know, that investigation was published five days before the, the gubernatorial election, and people were incensed about that. And at the time, the, the editor of the L.A. Times said, well, you know, it was finally ready, and should we have held it until after the election? No, because we felt citizens needed to know what we had. And so there's there are some there are some calculations like that that are necessarily part of it. But I do think that overall, you could take that clock right off the wall. There it doesn't sure. it doesn't need to be there. Right. Yeah. The journalism didn't put the clock up there, but uh, you're kind of stuck with it at least uh, most of the time. So. Uh, Emily, I, I just want to come back to something that you said before that made me think about what I regard as one of the ironies or, or strange twists of this story, particularly from the from the point of view of whatever quasi-legal procedure we would call a, a, a Senate committee hearing. And that is, you know, it's kind of unusual if you go back to the Blasey Ford story when there is a third person in the room, uh, was a third person uh, in the room in this story who, who would presumably back up Brett Kavanaugh's account of thing, things, and they, the Brett Kavanaugh side doesn't want him up there. His name is Mike Judge. And, and I mean, ordinarily, you would think that the Republicans who are eager to confirm Kavanaugh would really want Mike Judge up there to talk. But apparently, because of these memoirs he's written about being blind drunk for a, a lot of his adolescence that mention, I think, a Brett O. Kavanaugh. Um, I mean, this is the guy that they could use, but they can't use. Right. And this is of a piece with the missing FBI investigation, which is that if you if you claim you're innocent, if you think your guy is innocent, wouldn't you want to try to establish um, 
officially by a neutral investigator the facts that would prove that. And yes, Mark Judge is going to be conspicuously absent from the testimony on Thursday, even though Blasey Ford says that he was in the room. And the reason is obvious. He would be completely toxic to Kavanaugh by association because He's written extensively about exactly the kind of, you know, drinking and blackout situations that could um, possibly explain some of the facts here and why Kavanaugh might not remember them. Now I'm speculating, but um, it would be very hard to have Judge on uh, testify and then have Kavanaugh represent that he, you know, spent high school um, doing his homework and um, doing athletics as opposed to also doing a lot of drinking. So, Margaret, one of the things that has gotten a pretty bad reputation in journalism is so-called he said, she said narratives, right? Um, And uh, here in public radio, one of the things that we've been told occasionally is that our our listeners really don't want he said, she said narratives about anything. You know, they don't want us to say, well, some people say climate change is real. Some people say it isn't. You decide. You know, somebody, some people say OJ did it. And some people say he's not. You decide. They want us to make decisions. But it seems here as though we're back with another. He, sh- he said, she said narrative. It seems unlikely that there's going to be the kind of corroborating testimony that would help us, that would get a third voice into this. So what's journalism's mission in this situation? Well, we have to tell the story as fully as we can. And, you know, there's a kind of a mixed message that you get from people. They, it's true. They don't want that false equivalency, which you just described. Um, they don't want the earth is, you know, some people say the earth is round and others say the earth is flat and to treat these equally. But you do hear from people that they want balance and they do want to hear from all sides. So I think we have to we have to respect and consider all of those things, too. And I would suggest that this is not strictly a he said, she said situation in that she uh, did speak about it years ago in um in in therapy and uh the washington post reviewed her therapist notes and um she did talk about it to her husband and i think to others um years ago and this is while i i can't speak to whether that's you know sort of legal corroboration it certainly um it adds to to what we can can believe and what the sort of the credible um, pieces of information are. So I I think it's not quite the case to say, well, it's just his word against hers. So, Emily Bazelon, as we're nearing the end of this segment, I would be remiss if I just didn't tap into your incredible expertise on this. You wrote one of the defining pieces recently about how Republicans groom, prime, locate, identify, vet um, Supreme Court nominees so that they won't get another David Souter, so they'll get somebody who really basically performs as an arch-conservative the way that they want. So let's game this out just to, for just a second. Uh, let's assume that somehow or other Dave, uh, Brett Kavanaugh doesn't make it. Um, I would assume that what we'll see is another nominee with a, a less vivid paper trail, uh, but every bit as sure a, a, a bet to to do what the Federalist Society hopes that uh, Supreme Court justices should do. Yes, I think that is all a safe bet. Um, it is also possible that they will pick someone with a less sort of partisan, um, you know, Republican uh, stalwart history as Brett Kavanaugh, who, you know, was part of the Starr investigation, worked in the George W. Bush administration, um, is very close to the folks at the Federalist Society and um, Heritage who were 
closely involved in making this choice. Um, and one piece of research that's really struck me in uh, thinking about Supreme Court nominations is that when you have a nominee who has a past of working as a federal official, so often in the Justice Department or, you know, in this case for, for the Bush administration, those people are far less likely to drift ideologically when they get on the court. In other words, they stick with their prior views. They perform as the president who chose them would hope. And so that's, I think, one reason why um, Kavanaugh looks like such a safe bet for the right. And it's possible that, you know, if they move to another nominee, you'll find someone who has less Washington, D.C. partisan experience. Um, and just let me ask you a totally unfair question. Uh, but what the heck, I've got you here, um, <laughs> which is uh, I'm going to ask you to read Brett Kavanaugh's mind. Uh, imagine he sur- somehow or other survives this process. I mean, we have to wonder whether I mean, we already knew who he was ideologically. Uh, we ha- you sort of have to wonder whether he will b- would bear the scars and bitterness of this process into his career as a Supreme Court justice and become even more profoundly and emotionally locked into the person that we essentially suspect that he's been all along ideologically. I, I don't know. Do, is, do, is there any basis for guessing how somebody like Kavanaugh would process everything he's been through if he survives it? Well, we have an example of this in Clarence Thomas, right, who survived um, Anita Hill's accusations of sexual harassment in 1991 and went on to be a deeply conservative and, I would say, embittered justice. Now, I, none, none of us knows what Justice Thomas would have been like without the Anita Hill moment, so it's just hard to quite know how to gauge. But I do think that moments like this where you really um, find out, you know, who is going to stick with you, and who is going to doubt you, I think they do affect how people view the world and how open they are to, um, to the priorities and values and you know, deeply held concerns of people who have been their enemies at a prior stage of their career. All right. We have to stop there. Uh, read Morgan Sullivan's piece about how to stay sane this week, unless you've already lost your mind, which is a strong possibility. Read it anyway, though. You might be able to get some of your sanity back. It's terrific. Uh, she gives good advice. And then read uh, everything that Emily Bazelon writes and listen to her on the Slate Political Gab Fest. And go to RJ Julia and uh, pre-order Charged. Is that what it's called? Charged? Yes. Charged. Yes. Thank you, Colin. All right. So um, we're going to take a break. Uh, we're going to hear a very different point of view when we come back because Margaret told us we should listen to both sides. So David French will be with us. Political control was all they saw. But look whose reputation's now in ruin. Judge Kavanaugh. All right. I really I do have to tip my hat to producer Betsy Kaplan when we decided to do this show yesterday instead of a different episode. She said, well, who would be a good guest? And I said, I don't know. Margaret Sullivan, Emily Bazelon, David French. So she got all of them. Uh, <laughs> I didn't think we'd get all of them. This is so great. So David French is joining us right now. Margaret said it's important to talk to uh, as many sides as possible and important for for consumers of journalism to consume a lot of uh, different uh, perspectives on a case like this one. So David French, senior fellow uh, at the National Review Institute, senior writer uh, at the National Review. Welcome to our show and thanks for doing this. Well, thanks so much for having me. I appreciate it. 
I want to begin here. Uh, there's a lot of places that we can go, but I want to begin here. It, it seems to me that one of the things that's happening, at least temporarily and maybe permanently, is that a somewhat fragile alliance between Democrats and Republican never-Trumpers is really being tested and, and maybe fragmented a bit because uh, each side is very distrustful uh, of one another around this Kavanaugh nomination. There, there's a way in which the, the, the way it's being played out and the emotions that are coming to the fore and attitudes that are coming to the fore seem to be setting these temporary alliances in a certain amount of jeopardy. How does it feel kind of on your side of that? Oh, I think that's a very fair uh, characterization of what's happening. I mean, there was a couple of strands of people forget that there were a couple of major strands of never Trumpism in uh, on the right writ large in 2016. One of the strands was sort of what you would call center right never Trumpism. And these were the people who were sort of more moderate in their outlook ideologically, um, have a lot in common with sort of the more center-left uh, elements of the Democratic Party and the Democratic coalition. And for these folks, it was, I think, a lot easier to sort of say, well, I'm, I'm just temporarily and maybe permanently, depending on the state of the GOP, casting my lot with the Democrats. And then there was another form of never-Trumpism that was my branch – and that is we were uh, uh, coming at Trump from the right and saying this guy is not remotely conservative. He uh, does not believe in the conservative values that uh, we have been seeking in GOP nominees for a generation. Um, he is, in fact, uh, in many ways contrary to the opposite of what the conservative movement has been building towards. And we didn't end 2016 saying, well, we're going to make common cause with Democrats. We ended 2016 saying, you know, we're trying to preserve uh, and, and sustain in this time a truly conservative, conservative movement. So uh, from your perspective, um, as this has unfolded, and I mean, we're, we're sitting here talking about this on Tuesday, and so things have taken a certain kind of shape that they didn't have on Wednesday or Sunday or Saturday. But um, as this unfolds, I mean, uh, what would be an ideal sequence for from your point of view? If, in fact, we now have this situation, we want to get to the bottom of it, we want to arrive at some kind of you know, imperfect consensus about what's happening and, and whether Kavanaugh should be confirmed. What's the way to get there? Yeah, I don't know that there's a, an ideal left to us. <laughs> I think there is the best of bad options is to have a, compre a comprehensive hearing. I disagree with some of my friends uh, on the right who say we don't need to hear, for example, from Mark Judge. Uh, if he was allegedly a witness uh, in the, um, at the party, a person who allegedly witnessed and even maybe participated in the uh, alleged assault. I don't know why you wouldn't subpoena him and hear from him. And and from each uh, each person who we know that what you know that that uh, Dr. Ford indicated was at the party. So I think you you bring them in front of the Senate, you swear them in, and you hear from them. I think that that's the best way to deal with this. I don't know if that's what we're going to end up with, um, but it looks doubtful that we're going to end up with that. But I think that that's the best way to deal with it. Unlike many allegations of sexual assault, what you have here is, in spite of the, some of the hazy elements of it, Dr. Ford has identified specific people as being present. And now they have come forward on their own, and they have they've written letters to the Judiciary Committee, letters that are you know placed their story under penalty of felony, 
saying that they either don't remember the party, don't remember Kavanaugh being there. Um, but this is the kind of thing where I think people need to see faces and weigh credibility. Um, yeah, there seemed to be, uh, I mean, obviously a, a confirmation hearing or a confirmation related hearing uh, is not going to be a court of law. And so I guess they can make up any rules that they want to or make up any rules that they can get general consent about. But so there seemed to be this idea that, yeah, it'll just be one and then the other, which you think if you even go back to Anita Hill, you could sort of see why that might be a mistake, that probably, as you're suggesting, it makes sense to call anybody who's relevant uh, and and then kind of let the chips fall where they may. Well, yeah, I mean, I think at this point you have a you have a very limited universe of people who are known to be relevant. Uh, so this is not, you know, biting off an indefinite hearing um, days long affair. What you're talking about is hearing from a very defined universe of people. Uh, and, you know, in the Anita Hill hearings, it was true that the most important people to hear from were Hill and Clarence Thomas, but there were a number of other witnesses who spoke at that hearing. So it's possible to do this and to do this expeditiously. So I, I think that that's and, – and it also has the benefit of when you're talking about doing this in front of the Senate Judiciary Committee, you're following the constitutional structure. The constitutional structure gives the Senate the ability – to advise and consent on these nominees, the the fact finder here, the determ, the determiner here is the Senate, and so putting it in the Senate's hands seems to me to make the most sense. What we're doing right now, I mean, not atypically for for politics in, in America, is thrashing this all out in a series of, of articles and discussions of articles and discussions of discussions of articles and then tweets about the discussions of discussions of articles. And it just, I mean, there's just a, a huge amount of noise into which we're peering to see if we can find some kind of signal. Uh, but uh, I, I, I probably agree with Emily Bazelon and Margaret Sullivan more often than I agree with you about policy. But I did find myself agreeing with you that when I read the Ronan Farrow, Jane Mayer story about the second accuser on Sunday night, it made me very nervous in the way the narrative was constructed. So I'm going to give you some room to maybe talk about that. Right. You know, one thing I think a lot of people may not realize is how much journalists, I'm sure you face this as well, are exposed to just an avalanche of rumors about people who are in public life. And, you know, it's not our job as journalists to then just sort of take those rumors and put them on blast and use whatever platform that we have to to broadcast the rumors. One of the things that we do is we test them. We test these stories. And if there's sub, uh, sufficient substantiation, well, you know, then you publish them and let the chips fall where they may. The problem I had with the New Yorker story was the incredibly thin sourcing and substantiation. So you had a person who until recently said they weren't even sure that it was Brett Kavanaugh who allegedly exposed himself, met with their attorney for six days, and uh, that somehow helped ac- access the memory. Um, but even then, didn't have a clear memory of anything other than like Brett Kavanaugh pulling his pants up. Then um, when the New Yorker went and tried to find people who corroborate, nobody could even put Kavanaugh – nobody else could even put Kavanaugh at the party um, – the New York Times later said that they were looking at the same story and that the accuser had said to classmates she wasn't sure it was Kavanaugh. And so the only corroboration they had was somebody who wasn't at the party who said they heard about it secondhand. And that is not something – I know at National Review we would not print um, a claim against somebody on that basis. Um, that doesn't strike me. 
that's very much out of step. For example, uh, if you remember the Washington Post expose about Roy Moore, how thoroughly sourced that was compared to this New Yorker piece. Um, and it just made me very uncomfortable. Um, it, it reminded me of, of the argument you sometimes see when people share things irresponsibly online, as they'll say, well, I know that the existence of this claim is newsworthy, so therefore I will publish it. Well, that applies to virtually any rumor involving a public official, but you know, we need to chase these things down, and with all those inconsistencies and a total lack of contemporaneous corroboration, it, it made me very queasy to read it. Right. I, I, and I'm going to make a, a comparison that is really going to offend some people, so I want to preface it by saying I subscribe to The New Yorker. I have a lot of respect for David Remnick. <laughs> I think he's a terrific editor. But, you know, there was a period of time, and I, 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 I'm not sure I have the specific detail right, but there was a period of time back in the 90s where there was kind of a philosophy, well, if there were a story like that, that a lot of people knew but lacked adequate amount of confirmation, all you had to do was get it in the National Enquirer, and then everybody would have to report about what had been in the National right. Enquirer. And I think that Jennifer Flowers is the example of that, but I'm not 100% sure. One of the big bombshells of the 90s anyway, broke that way, and maybe more than one. But it's it's weird, was weird to see this and know, well, this is a story the Times wouldn't go to print with. I mean, they've been very clear, as you say, that this is, they didn't have the kind of story that they'd be comfortable with. But the New Yorker would go to print with it, and that means kind of that now everybody, it's fair game at that point. Right, exactly. The first person to put it into the public domain then makes it fair game. And so then the question is, who puts it in the public domain and, and what's the basis for doing so? And, and you know, look, I understand. I mean, if, if you are a, if you're a journalistic enterprise in a highly competitive environment and you have a story and you know, say, the New York Times and or the Washington Post are nipping at your heels on it, there's an awful lot of pressure uh, to go forward, especially if you have superstar uh, journalists, reporters who are saying, hey, I think this is good to go. Um, and so, you know, I, I, I get I get the pressure involved. Uh, I, I have immense respect for the New Yorker as a general rule. Uh, they've done some pretty uh, astonishing, uh, astonishingly good journalism over the last many many years. But this one was a bad call, and I think it's a bad call that helped poison the debate. And ironically enough, I think it actually helped harden a lot of the GOP's attitudes uh, towards this process. Um, which is one of the reasons why, you know, the conversation today, if you're following sort of the back and forth on Twitter, has almost completely moved on to New, the New Yorker, to what I'm calling a CSI yearbook, <laughs> which is the analysis of Brett Kavanaugh's Georgetown Prep yearbook entries. So, David French, I'm running out of time because I want to leave some time for listener calls on the other side of this break. But um, this is public radio. Uh, let's be honest. The people who listen to the show are probably more often exposed to opinions, you know, in closer to Emily Bazelon's than to David French's. So since we've got you here, is there one, I'm going to kind of hand you a blank check. Is there <laughs> one thing that you like people to think about that probably if they don't read the National Review but do read The New Yorker, they're not thinking about right now? Yeah, I think one thing that's really important for people to consider is whether we're going to abandon the concept of a burden of proof. Um, and, and this is something that I think both right and left should be con deeply concerned about. Right now we're operating often in, in quarters of the right and the left with what I'd call a presumption of evil. So there would be, say, on the right, a presumption that this is baseless against Kavanaugh because that's what the left does is it smears conservatives. 
And then you're often going to have a sort of a presumption, and I've seen this uh, on the left, uh, uh, Senator Hirano from Hawaii. Well, I, you know, look, I'm not going to hold uh, use the, the same kind of presumption of innocence for for Kavanaugh because I don't like his judicial philosophy. Both of these things are, are very, very dangerous. And I think one of the things that we have established in hundreds of years of important fact-finding in this country is that there needs to be, at the very least, and I don't say proof beyond a reasonable doubt, I, I'm, the standard I've articulated is, is a preponderance of the evidence. Is it more likely than not that these allegations are true? And can we, can we hold both sides to that? And, and I think that the, the importance of, this, uh, uh, of the presumption of, proof, a presumption of innocence and a burden of proof are incredibly important in fact-finding. And, and that, if we abandon that, we're kind of at sea. If it's just, well, it's so long as there's a chance. Well, so long as the claims are, quote-unquote, credible. But what does that even mean? We, we don't even really know what that means. Uh, and so, for example, in the Roy Moore controversy, when the Washington Post came forward with multiple accounts that had contemporaneous corroboration, witnesses who said, at the time, oh, this victim told me what happened, corroboration beyond that, I looked at that situation and I said, you know what, it seems more likely than not that Roy Moore um, committed acts of sexual misconduct against minors. He has no business being in the Senate. Um, and, and I think that you know, that's, if that's a standard that we can apply, and it's a good way to think through this. We don't have to reinvent the wheel when it comes to fact-finding. We can think through this, and we can do it in a way that harkens back to hundreds of years of American tradition in trying to determine what's true and what's not. All right. It, it may be hard to find people who are as helpful in, in gingering their own demise as Roy Moore, but I take your point. Uh, David French, a senior fellow for the National Review Institute and senior writer at National Review. Thank you so much for joining this show. Thanks so much for having me. I appreciate it. OK, we're going to take a break and then uh, the floor is yours. It won't be as big a floor as I might have liked, but there was a lot of ground to cover. 860-275-7266. Call in if you like. If you're confirmed before November, protect and love the country that you serve. Or just throw out the law and make America the 1950s Russia we deserve. Today's show was, wow, that changes everything. Today's show was produced by, he did? Well, now we're going to have to go back and change stuff. Okay, the latest thing is that Trump sold our planet to a race of sentient robots. So, a lot of what's been said today may be moot. Today's show was produced by Betsy Kaplan and me, Kyone Wolf. Amanda Fish now belongs to Robot 7711WQ. Our intern is Phil Geolopsis. The part of Bill Curry was played by Tom Cruise. On tomorrow's show, The Wheelhouse and Colin are both live from New Haven, and Colin will be talking to Joyce Maynard. And now, back to Colin. Yeah, we are sort of uh, intentionally and maybe slightly inadvertently at full Brett Kavanaugh battle stations right now. So tomorrow, uh, we move The Wheelhouse down to New Haven. Uh, I think we have 
Paul Bass and Kalar Brown Dean, but don't hold me to that. I've been focusing a little bit on this show. Uh, we will. I mean, so much of this Kavanaugh story seems to be playing out in New Haven uh, that it made sense kind of to be there. I can circle back to that. But I do want to mention, if you want to call in about anything you've heard so far on the show or something you haven't heard, related to this story, 860-275-7266. But don't hesitate because time is very short right now. 860-275-7266. If you have a point to make or a question to ask, not that I know the answers to questions, uh, you got to call 860-275-7266. Anyway, while you're doing that, if you're doing that, uh, I will say that t- so tomorrow we are going to move down to uh, New Haven because, you know, the Kavanaugh story, well, I mean, obviously the entire Ramirez allegation uh, takes place in a place called Lawrence Hall on the old campus. I've I've been there many times. As a freshman, I wasn't at any parties like that. Um, but uh, since then, there have been a protests on the Yale uh, campus uh, and some interesting questions raised by Nick Christakis, the former uh, head of Silliman College, uh, who, in fact, ran a follow some protesters during his own tenure. He was asking, well, you know, is it does it is it right? Or does it make sense to say that everybody's released from classes so they can go protest something like Kavanaugh's nomination? Would you do it for the other side? Shouldn't people who want to engage in some kind of civil disobedience or or protest be prepared to bear whatever burden comes with that, including maybe a missed class or something like that? Interesting question by Nicholas Christakis. But anyway, it made sense to be down in New Haven. And anyway, Joyce Maynard uh, is going to be in New Haven. She's the author of many books, including uh, To Die For, which was made into a Nicole Kidman movie. But, I mean, memorably, uh, in, I think... Well, I should have looked this up, but uh, I think around 1972 or so, she wrote this uh, very, very controversial essay about entering Yale as a freshman and everything that she took with her from her life so far. Um, it's it's hard to characterize it in a nutshell. But anyway, uh, and now she's uh, back in New Haven. She's following this stuff very, very closely. So although nominally we have her memoir about her second marriage uh, to talk about, um, and we will talk about it. Uh, she wants to talk about a lot of this other stuff. And she's a uniquely interesting person to talk to, I think, uh, about this kind of stuff. So uh, let's go to the phones now. 860-275-7266. As I say, time is somewhat limited. But here's Lauren. Hi, you're on the air, Lauren. Hi, thank you so much for taking my call. Sure. Um, one thing that I think that... Um, I just want to say first and foremost that I do think that Kavanaugh is absolutely guilty. I'm not going to fight that. Mm-hmm. Um, but one thing that I worry about that I think people might not be thinking of is that if it's true that Kavanaugh is going to be acquitted of everything and then therefore elected, um, perhaps this will be detrimental to the Me Too movement. Perhaps um, the convenience of things coming out when they're coming out um, it's suspicious in the eyes of Republicans. And so if it is being used at the time that it's being used so that we'll screw over Kavanaugh, <laughs> perhaps that will hurt the Me Too movement and it will discredit it. You know, I, I think, first of all, one thing that I would recommend reading, um, uh, because I think it, he has an interesting perspective on all this, is Andrew Sullivan's most recent piece uh, in New York Magazine. I'm not even sure what, what it what its title is, but it talks a little bit about that and about the fact that, you know, because the Me Too movement is young, it's also, it, you know, that whole idea of proportionality and scale and stuff like that hasn't really settled in. Uh, and, and 
people are, you know, at times uh, either punished in a way that doesn't really seem commensurate with the offense. Or uh, I think he gives the example of Ian Baruma, the editor of the New York Review of Books, uh, was punished for publishing one piece the same way Les Moonves of, uh, of CBS was punished for, you know, much more visceral hands-on, so to speak, uh, offenses. And and. I would say that one of the I don't I don't think that the Me Too movement is going to be discredited. I, I but I think it's further proof we need to have longer, deeper, less tension-filled stories about it, uh, conversations about it. Right? Like, how do we handle all this stuff? You know, in, in a way that's not completely immediately jumped to judgment. Am I making any sense at all? No, I absolutely think that that's true. And I think that if we had more time to unpack and at least uncover the facts, that it would definitely help. But I do worry that I have heard in, you know, Republicans that are in my circle of conversation over and over and over, their argument is, you know, oh, it's suspicious, it's way too convenient. And I agree with that. And I think that it's giving them ammo to think that, you know, this is coming out of complete lies. There's no truth to it. They're just using the Me Too movement as ammo. And I worry that that will, you know, hurt other people who maybe need to be believed in the future. Well, Lauren, because we don't even have time to take another call, let me just say one more thing. What you just said was really incredibly important, which is that you are in touch. You are obviously somebody who leans to the left, doesn't want Brett Kavanaugh as a justice of the Supreme Court, but you're in touch with Republicans who feel the opposite way. And you're very aware in a somewhat nuanced way of how they feel about it. This, I think, is happening less and less in our society. I think, you know, there's uh, a sense, there's something called contact theory that, that says that if you're in touch with the other side, you can have have more complicated conversations and more complicated thoughts, which you're clearly doing. <laughs> but oh, there's a lot yeah. of people who aren't, you know? You know what I'm saying? Well, yeah, it's definitely a challenge. I come from a Republican family, although I am a very, very liberal person, and so it's a little hard to keep my mouth closed sometimes. But I think that it is a good opportunity to kind of gather information and then come back with a collected idea later in the evening. Also, just listening is good. Listening uh, to the other side, it's, it's information of all kinds. All right, we're going to have to stop it there. I'm sorry we only got to one call, but we did have a pretty amazing guests. How often are you going to have Margaret Sullivan, Emily Bazelon, and David French all on one little show here in Connecticut? Uh, but you have to have a great producer to go get them. That's Betsy Kaplan. Thanks again to her. Thanks to everybody who worked on this show. We'll be back in New Haven. You can start with us at 9 o'clock tomorrow for The Wheelhouse, where there'll be more of this kind of conversation. And then Joyce Maynard at one, or just listen whenever you want to. There's this thing called the interwebs. You can just listen whenever you want to at wnpr.org slash Colin.